0: This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We'll be focusing on the last couple of verses of uh, Philippians 1 this morning, but in order to pick up the flow of... Paul's thought and to apply a little bit of Dr. Snowberger's sermon from yesterday, we'll do some public reading of the scriptures. We're going to read the entirety of Philippians chapter 1 starting up in verse 1. Paul says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ, and because of my chains... Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. And now our passage. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here that I still have. All right, as you may recall, and as Paul hints at in verse 30 and a couple other places there, this is not Paul's first interaction with the believers in Philippi. Back in Acts chapter 16, Luke tells us about Paul's second missionary journey. tells us that Paul and Silas came to Philippi, and there they encountered, encountered a businesswoman named Lydia, apparently a seller of purple cloth or something. And it tells us that she heard the gospel and accepted it and she was baptized, and her entire house household was baptized and added to the church. Then sometime not long after Lydia's conversion, Paul and Silas were walking around the city of Philippi and they encountered a slave girl who was possessed by an evil spirit. And Paul cast that evil spirit out of the slave girl, and one would have thought perhaps people would thank him. Good job, Paul, thank you for you know, helping this young girl, but that's not what happens. Basically a riot breaks out, and Paul and Silas get thrown into prison. But even there, they, they continue to praise God. Apparently, that same night, they're just briefly in prison. That same night, they uh, God sends an earthquake and allows them to uh, the gates of the prison are broken open and such. And the Philippian jailer goes to kill himself, and as you recall, Paul interrupts that, stops him, and says, "No, we're all here." And the Philippian jailer falls down in front of Paul and Silas and says, "Sirs, what must I do to be saved?" And he is converted and his household and they're baptized and added to the church. In Philippi. Now as Paul has dictated this letter, about 10 years have passed since he's been there, or at least the events recorded in Acts 16, and Paul once again finds himself in prison. He tells us a couple of times he's in chains. Most likely at this point he's in a Roman prison. There are a couple other theories. Some have suggested maybe Caesarea or even Ephesus, and part of the reason for the closer locations is because of the back and forth that we see that Epaphrodite, well, they find out he's in prison and then they send Epaphroditus to him he's going to send Epaphroditus back there's some back and forth Um, the the people in Philippi know that Epaphroditus is sick while he's there so there's quite a bit of communication back and forth between Paul and the people in Philippi well this letter is going to be another step in that uh, communication certainly the most significant for our purposes somehow the Philippians have heard about Paul's imprisonment his chains and they've sent Epaphroditus in order to minister to his needs this point Amnesty International is not lobbying the emperor to you know improve prison conditions and uh, Nero isn't stopping by to fluff uh, Paul's pillow each night so things are not good Paul is not in in good conditions here and they send Epaphroditus who becomes ill most likely while he's in Rome so Paul's living in difficult conditions and now as he writes to the church in Philippi he's planning to send Epaphroditus back to them with this letter what we know as the book of Philippians Throughout much of chapter 1, Paul focuses on his own circumstances and how his imprisonment has furthered the cause of the gospel and has actually caused others to be more bold in proclaiming the gospel. Notice up in verse 14, he said, Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So Paul may not be living under ideal living conditions here, but his chains are actually helping the progress of the gospel. Uh, wherever it is he's located and as we come to the last few verses of this chapter Paul transitions from narrative to really the imperative to talking about what people should do as they read this letter he goes from talking about what's happened to him and, and how his chains have helped the progress of the gospel to talking about the Philippians and their conditions their the situation there in Philippi and their responsibilities toward the gospel and in our passage verses 27-30 through 30, uh, Paul prefaces his instructions to the Philippian believers with the words, whatever happens, whatever happens, don't know he's in prison, he, he thinks he's going to be released, it seems like God is going to do that, but it really he's at the point of uh, where something could go either way. And so he says, whatever happens, some of your translations, if you have an ESV, I think it says only at this point, like this is the main thing. Um, if you have a Christian standard Bible, it says just one thing. And some think that Paul, at this point, is really getting to the main part of the book. This is really his main message in the book. Regardless, he's clearly turning a a corner here and starting to say to the Philippians, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to focus on. He's going to exhort them to live worthy of the gospel. He says this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, our entire passage, verses 27 through 30, is one sentence in Greek. When you write your research and writing uh, papers, please don't write sentences this long, but there is, at least you do have biblical warrant for doing so, but uh, it probably isn't the best English. And uh, thankfully, most of our translations have broken this up into a number of sentences. Anyway, the main verb of this entire sentence is right here near the beginning, what's translated in, in my version as conduct yourselves. And in using this particular word, Paul is using a rather unusual verb only appears one other time as a verb in the new testament and that's back in acts 23 Uh, rather interestingly when the church father polycarp of smyrna wrote a letter to the church in philippi about 50 years after paul did so polycarp is a is a man living in the early second century and as a pastor he writes a letter of advice and counsel to the church in philippi which bears some similarities to the book of philippians that we have he actually used the same verb again in writing to the Philippian believers and exhorting them about how they should live. When speaking about one's conduct or manner of life, Paul Moore often uses a different word that can be translated quite literally, walk. Walk worthy, um, walk as wise men, not as unwise, things like that, walk, uh, don't walk according to the flesh. The verb that's here translated, conduct yourself, though, is a different word. It carries with it the idea of living as a good citizen or fulfilling one's civic duties. In fact, if you have an ESV, you probably have a marginal note telling you that this term could be translated only behave as citizens who are worthy. Some have argued that Paul chose this particular word because Philippi was a Roman colony and the Philippians prided themselves on their status as Roman citizens. Therefore, a few commentators have argued that Paul was exhorting the Philippian believers to live as good Roman citizens in the city of Philippi. So he's saying basically be good citizens. Um, Obey Rome something like that. I think Paul certainly would want the Philippian believers to live as good citizens. After all, he's the one who wrote Romans 13 and and other passages that exhort people to obey the ruling authorities. But I don't think Paul chose to use this particular word here in order to say, um, you are Roman citizens, here's how you should live in light of Roman authority. I don't think that's really what he's hitting at. Rather, I think Paul is exhorting the Philippian believers to remember their heavenly citizenship, And he's telling them to live as good citizens of another kingdom. In fact, Paul uses a cognate of this verb, conduct, just the next page over in Philippians 3, verse 20. Where he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. So he's using a related word here, again, to emphasize citizenship, or the fact that our citizenship is in heaven. So in other words, in this passage, Paul's exhorting the Philippian believers to live in light of their heavenly citizenship. Paul's saying, live as a person who's not bound to this world and focused on the things of this life, but rather live in light of your eternal home. Although our circumstances are very different from those which the Philippian believers faced, we need this reminder surely as they did, don't we? I mean, we can easily get caught up in the things of this world. And the truth is, we do live on this planet as dual citizens. We have responsibilities, God-given responsibilities, that run in two different realms. We should vote as citizens. We should pay our taxes. We rather must. And uh, in a few months here, we'll need to shovel our walks as good citizens caring for our neighbors. So we have responsibilities that are very much part of this life and fairly mundane things. But we also have other responsibilities that have to do with eternal things and the gospel, the church. In addition to emphasizing the believer's heavenly citizenship, Paul also exhorts believers to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's not saying that people must become worthy of the gospel in order to enjoy its benefits. Paul's obviously not teaching some kind of works-based salvation. So he's not saying live worthy of the gospel so that you will be saved or something like that. Rather, Paul exhorts believers to live in keeping with their high calling in the gospel. Live in light of what they are. This is similar to what Paul writes in other places. For example, you don't need to turn to these, but in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received Well in the book of Colossians chapter 1 Paul recounts his prayer for the Colossian believers He says we continue to ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will Through all wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way In each of these passages, Paul is exhorting believers to live in keeping with their standing in Christ As he puts it in our passage, believers must live worthy of the gospel. Paul's assumption seems to be that the gospel or the good news about Christ has known ethical implications. It impacts how one lives. And so he exhorts them, live in a certain way. Believers, or those who are citizens of heaven, those who embrace the gospel should and really must live differently than those who reject the gospel. I think the world has seen enough of Christian hypocrites if you think about it, in movies that you may see, whenever a Christian is depicted, it's not that common. But if a Christian is depicted, they're basically going to be either a bumbling idiot, or particularly if they're a leader, they're going to be a hypocrite. They're going to be someone who is has this secret evil that is really not. You might think they're a good person outwardly, but they are actually um, a, a the epitome of evil. And I think that this world has has certainly seen that sometimes played out. Now, admittedly, we all live inconsistently to some extent, I mean, we have embraced the gospel. We profess to follow Christ, and yet we still sin, um, and Paul recognizes that. Yet we must aim, by God's grace, to live in light of the gospel we've embraced, in light of the good news about Christ that we try to proclaim to others. So we must aim to live lives of integrity. Like the Philippians, we need to aim to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. In addition to this general admonition to live live, lives worthy of the gospel, Paul suggests that the conduct of believers should be characterized by certain qualities. He says that the conduct of believers should be marked by a steadfast and confident struggle for the sake of the gospel. In our passage, Paul lists three aspects of what this gospel worthy conduct involves. Paul really fleshes out what lives worthy of the gospel should look like. First, he exhorts the Philippian believers, and by extension, all believers, stand firm in the holy spirit second half of verse 27 he says then whether i come and see you or only hear about you in my absence i will know that you stand firm in the one spirit now some of you may have translations that have spirit in lower case uh, suggesting that this would be like the human spirit or something there are a couple of challenges with that Uh, one is that he talks about the one spirit so standing fast in the one human spirit seems rather odd um so I think here he's talking about the Holy Spirit. I think the NIV has it right. This is talking about the Holy Spirit. One is to stand fast in the Holy Spirit. We're to stand fast in the gospel that we've embraced. So believers must not waver or vacillate in their commitment to Christ and his message of grace. Paul is saying, stand firm, don't be easily shaken by the winds that blow. In addition to this, Paul also tells the Philippian believers to strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now, Admittedly, many churches are marked by striving believers of one sort or another, but Paul's not talking about contentious believers. He's not talking about contending with one another um, over the gospel or over whatever within the church. Paul appears here to be drawing on athletic imagery. You all know I'm a great athlete and uh, connoisseur of sports. Uh, This is going to be like the maximum of my uh, sports knowledge uh, this morning. Paul's urging believers to put forth effort for the sake of the good news of Christ. Um, And he says they're not to do this really as an individual thing, but more as a team thing. If you think about, if I can push the sports analogy a bit more, this is not like boxing. This is not two guys in the ring slugging it out, but basically it's you. You don't have teammates, you're just there. If you get hit, no one's there to pick you up until the bell rings or whatever it is. Um, So it's not like that. That's not the way Paul is depicting this striving. Rather, it's more like a basketball game or a basketball team where if your point guard, this is, this is really stretching here, but <laughs> I had to look this up actually. <laughs> if the point guard though, won't let go of the ball. All right, I have watched some basketball. If the, if the point guard won't let go of the ball, the team's gonna be in trouble, right? If he just wants to hang on to the ball the whole game. Likewise, I know the center is not supposed to dribble the ball up the court most of the time. If he does, the other team's kind of gonna have a heyday. I guess it's too far from the, uh, the floor to his hand or whatever. Um, never was an issue for me. Um, anyway, Paul is, is saying that a to, you should be like a team here. You should strive together. You should work together. And a successful team uh, works together. Um, people play the part that they need to. The Christian life, striving for the sake of the gospel, is really a group effort, not an individual thing. Having exhorted the Philippian believers to stand firm in the spirit and to strive together as one for the sake of the gospel. Paul also encourages believers to follow Christ without fear. He says, do these things verse 28 without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now at this point point, in talking about those who oppose you, Paul doesn't seem to be speaking about false teachers or even fellow believers who are troubling, um, causing trouble within the church. Rather, he's talking about opponents outside the church who are harassing believers The Philippian believers are apparently being harassed by people outside the church there in Philippi. Now at this early point in church history, we're in the early 60s here, uh, widespread government-driven persecution is probably not the problem here. Uh, There were bits of persecution that were sponsored by the government when it was stirred up enough locally, but that's that's likely not what's going on here because that was not widespread in the first century. So this probably isn't government-sponsored persecution of Christians. As well, the city of Philippi was fairly Roman. It was not a predominantly Jewish city, so this probably isn't Jewish leaders who are attacking Christians, perhaps for their you know, recognition of what they perceive to be a false messiah. So I don't think this is a persecution at the hand of Jewish leaders or, most likely, government authorities either. Most likely, these opponents of the church were unbelieving Gentiles who were enemies of the gospel and wanted to oppose believers and hinder the work of God at Philippi. And Paul's instruction to the Philippian, believer, uh, Philippian believers is to stand strong and keep striving together without being intimidated by such people, by people who dislike the gospel, who in some way or another are hindering the church. You know, overconfidence can be a bad thing. Um, We've probably all watched YouTube videos where someone's showboating one moment and the next moment they fall on their face and we find it very entertaining, don't we? Um, maybe we're all twisted a bit, but we, uh, we like to see someone who thinks they're everything And then they fall and uh, whatever, end up looking like a fool. Uh, Well, not all confidence is actually a bad thing. All right, overconfidence is a bad thing, but not all confidence is bad, Um, especially when that confidence has to do with God and his work in the world. As believers, we should be confident in God, in what he is doing in the world he has made. In fact, being intimidated by those who oppose God only demonstrates who we think is more powerful. If we are all concerned about the enemies of God and and concerned and fearful of them, it shows we ultimately think they have a power they don't really have. Uh, We think that they're in some way more powerful than God. A healthy confidence in the gospel and the God of the gospel is a sign to those who oppose the gospel. As Paul says, it's a sign to those who oppose the gospel of their coming destruction. It's also a sign that believers will ultimately be saved by the God they trust in. Our gospel-worthy conduct should be marked by standing firm in the Spirit and by pushing forward together with other believers for the sake of the gospel. But such conduct, Paul admits, can carry a price tag. He doesn't say you're not going to face persecution or suffering. Gospel-worthy conduct has often led to persecution and suffering in this life. And in verses 29 and 30, Paul provides a theological explanation for suffering. And he starts out by declaring that believers should not be surprised by their suffering for the sake of the gospel. Although suffering is not the primary theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul was very familiar with the concept of suffering for the gospel's sake. In uh, in Dostoevsky's um, novel, The Idiot, he, the main character is perceived to be an idiot by many people. He's actually kind of clever, but um, he's usually referred to as the prince and the prince at one point is sitting down telling a group of ladies a story about his four years when he lived in switzerland and he's talking about a time when he stood on a mountaintop looking down at a beautiful village and as he looked down at the village he says i thought you know life is very grand but then he said i also thought well i wonder if life would be more grand in a big exciting city and he tells the ladies the more i thought about it the more i realized life could be grand even in a prison. Well, Paul is not like some mountaintop guy theorizing about what prison is like. He's not saying, well, you know, I think life could be pretty grand in prison. He's actually in prison. He's in chains. I mentioned earlier, I think, that uh, he was probably dictating the letter, but if he was writing the letter with his hand, the chain may have been holding the paper down. If he was speaking to someone, say, out a window or something, as he lifted his hand, the chains probably clinked. So Paul knows what he's talking about when he talks about suffering. He's not just talking in theory. Uh, Pest control has not been very good in the prison, and, uh, and things are not good. Moreover, suffering appears to have been an important part of the historical context of the church in Philippi, something that they were actually experiencing right then. Suffering is, in fact, something that underlies a number of Paul's comments throughout the book and something he addresses directly in this passage. Paul wants to explain the suffering which believers sometimes endure for the sake of the gospel. And in our passage, he does this in two ways. First, in verse 29, Paul discusses the Philippian believers suffering in terms of their relationship to Christ. And he says that suffering for the sake of the gospel is actually a gift from God. He says in verse 29, for he has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. In this passage, Paul is not talking about suffering in general, being sick or just kind of putting up with the inconveniences of this life. I'm annoyed, I stub my toe, whatever. He's not talking about just you know, the annoyances of life. Um, he's talking about standing for the gospel, about living in a world where Christ is hated and standing for Christ and at times facing persecution and some measure of suffering because of that. Now, as good Calvinists, those who affirm the sovereignty of God and salvation, we readily acknowledge that saving faith is a gift from God, right? Ephesians 2, for by grace you save through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. And yet, we don't as quickly, as kind of pleasure-loving Americans who get annoyed waiting in line for an overpriced drink at Starbucks, we don't as quickly go, well, yeah, suffering is also a gift from God. That's, that's something God gives us. And yet, Paul has no problem uh, putting faith and suffering side by side as both being gifts from God. As far as Paul is concerned, suffering for the sake of the gospel is a gracious gift from an all-wise God, and the Philippians need to view it that way. Then in verse 30, Paul puts the Philippian believers' suffering in terms of their relationship to himself. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now here that I still have. Suffering for the sake of the gospel is something that characterized the ministry of Paul and the experience of many early Christians. And Paul speaks about suffering as a part of their common experience as fellow believers. Perhaps the Philippian jailer who had actually seen the stripes on Paul's back, uh, perhaps he's still in the church in Philippi. I tend to think he was not an old man when he was a jailer, and so it's likely he's still there. Um, perhaps other Philippians who saw the riot, saw Paul being beaten and carried off to prison. and Luke tells us that when Paul was released from prison by the Roman authorities after realizing he's a citizen and so forth, uh, that he goes to the church in Philippi. And so many of them probably saw the poor condition he was in, having not had the best of sleeping conditions and the best food to eat and such. And they, they recalled seeing the suffering that Paul had gone through. They'd also heard about his present suffering in a Roman prison. Paul basically says to the Philippian believers, we're in this together. Though we're separated by hundreds of miles, suffering is an experience that we share together as followers of Christ and heralds of his gospel. Living in North America, we know very, very little of this kind of suffering. Admittedly, we don't really experience suffering for the sake of the gospel. But at very least for us, Paul's exhortation means that the advance and progress of the gospel is worth discomfort. It's worth sacrifice and even real bonafide suffering if we're in such a context. So Paul's admonition is that we expect this, that we accept it, accept it as a gift from God. We live in very different circumstances from the Philippian believers. We might complain about our government, but at least we have a voice in our government, even if seems at times our voice is a small, small minority. Uh, we may have neighbors that reject the gospel, but we don't really have to worry about being thrown into prison. We're not going to be stoned for the gospel at this point. Um, we're not going to be thrown in jail. But we still need to take Paul's admonition to heart. We need to live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Our conduct needs to be worthy of the gospel we believe and proclaim, and we need to be confident in the God who has saved us and who rules over all. The way that we live must really be shaped by the gospel that we believe. All right, let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, the grace that has called us to salvation. And we ask, Lord, that you would also provide grace and allow us to live lives that are worthy of what you've called us to. Thank you for the privilege of studying your word and ask that you'd help us to obey it in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.